Welcome to an Eastern Standard special series produced by Dynamics Productions and WEKU, Democracy Optimist, with Professor Joshua Douglas of the University of Kentucky Rosenberg College of Law and author of The Court Versus the Voters, The Troubling Story of How the Supreme Court Has Undermined Voting Rights, publishing in May. Throughout the 2024 election season, considered by many to be the most consequential of a lifetime, we'll be bringing you conversations with election and voting experts from across the political spectrum so that when you go to the polls on November 5th, you'll arrive fully informed about how it all works to keep our democracy alive and well. Missed an episode? No problem. You can find a growing list of episodes online at eswekuorg Just click on the Democracy Optimist tab. So let's dive right in. Here's Josh Douglas. Welcome to Democracy Optimist, where we bring you the good, the bad, and the ugly on voting rights and election law with a dose of hope sprinkled in. Today's special guest is Secretary of State Michael Adams, the Kentucky Secretary of State. Now, before we start, let me tell you a quick story about Secretary Adams. He and I initially met when he was running for his first term of office in 2019. And at some point that summer, he contacted me and said, hey, if I win, would you like to serve on my transition team to the office? I responded that I was pretty surprised, given that I opposed his number one campaign promise of enacting a strict photo ID requirement for Kentucky elections. His response? That's why I want you on my team. So I thought maybe this guy's the real deal if he's looking for people who oppose his ideas to help him transition to the office. He won. I served on the transition team, and we can talk about in our conversation what the photo ID law in Kentucky did in addition to other Kentucky laws. Secretary Adams, welcome to Democracy Optimist. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So in an era in which partisanship seems to drive everything we talk about with respect to elections and voting rights, you have publicly strived for bipartisanship in the conversation about Kentucky election law. Why do you do that? And is it successful? Well, it's certainly been successful here. I think it would succeed elsewhere if anybody else would have the good sense to try it. Uh, I think I think really any policy area, you ought to try to get as many voices together as you can. But I think especially with elections, it's really critical because you don't want to sense that one team is writing the rules and, you, and the other team is excluded. Because what that leads to is a doubt about the election being fair in the first place and a sense that people aren't being included the whole point of elections is to include everybody and have every voice heard. So what we found in Kentucky is when we have it uh, formed in bipartisan fashion, when we get people in the room, a Democratic governor, Republican secretary of state, uh, legislators of both parties, county clerks of both parties, and we work in good faith to try to improve our system, number one, we just get a, a bigger array of voices uh, and a better array of options for consideration. But also it's a good look. Because when we go out there and hold a press conference and explain our, our ideas jointly, it leads uh, voters on both sides of the aisle and 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 non-Democrats and Republicans too, independents to to feel like, well, like this is a real a real fair system. My vote counts. I'm not going to be discriminated against. One team isn't conspiring to read the election from the other team. We can trust this system. And I I do think Kentucky is doing better 
than the average state right now in terms of public confidence in our elections. Uh, we have our challenges. I deal with that every day. But I do think that we're, all, uh, we're a lot better off here than what we've seen in some other states on that. So let's talk about the myth-busting role of your job. You know, what's the biggest myth that many people believe regarding how our elections operate, and how do you combat that misinformation? You know, the the most frustrating thing about this job is is dealing with misinformation. And the most frustrating thing about dealing with misinformation is every time you debunk a theory, those people retreat and they come back with another theory. And then they they don't ever acknowledge that you disproved them 20 times before. They just act like it's a brand new conversation. So just to give you a couple of examples, back in 2020, when I worked with our, our Democratic governor to make sure we had a good election process during uh, the worst of, of uh, coronavirus, uh, the predictions were that the Democrats were going to win all of these seats. They'd take legislative seats. Joe Biden might win Kentucky and all these uh, all these predictions. Of course, they turned out to be pretty wildly off. Uh, Donald Trump won Kentucky by almost 30 points. Republicans picked up seats in the legislature. Uh, most voters who used early voting were registered Republican, actually, which was a shock to me, honestly, uh, because the, the head of the Republican Party was saying that you can't trust early voting. Uh, so uh, those people were debunked. And then they disappeared for a while, and they came back with a different theory, which was Adams and his ilk, they're not trying to steal elections uh, for Democrats. They're trying to steal them for rhino, mainstream, whatever you want to call them, centrist, traditional Republicans. And so then I started getting sued after the 2022 primaries uh, in races that uh, incumbent Republicans had won comfortably uh, in their legislative races. Their challengers that had gotten blown out sued and alleged that we were rigging the elections for Republicans. And of course, they uh, didn't acknowledge that we just proved those same theories two years before. So unfortunately, these these theories, uh, you know, the motives uh, that are alleged changed, the methods changed. We've tried to be reasonably responsive. We we never respond to any, uh, we, we never concede any good faith on their part or any rightness, but we do try to take measures to cut them off of the past. For example, uh, we passed a, a bipartisan ban on any of our ballot scanners from having internet capability. Uh, we passed that a couple of years ago. Not once in any Kentucky election is any any voting equipment ever touched the internet. But I was pretty happy to write a law and say, well, we're going to ban it anyway, just so they can we can always debunk them and say, well, look, what they're saying that we're doing is against the law. It's a felony. No one's doing it. Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the response could be, well, so you need the law. So maybe you were doing it beforehand. Um, you know, it's it's impossible to to fight back against some of these things. I often I often uh, say that, you know, no matter the number of times when my kids were younger and they would say, you know, there's monsters under the bed, you know, the number of times I look and tell them there's no monsters, it's proving a negative. You know, what more can I do besides look every single time and, and let them know there's, there are still no monsters there. And that's sort of this this idea of voter fraud, massive voter fraud or, or you know, machines connected to the Internet. It feels like that as well. Yeah, you know, maybe a little beyond your question, but I think important is there is a larger, a larger social problem that we have today in our country, which is that there is such a, a doubt uh, in institutions and a doubt in government that people will manufacture stuff that the government's doing to have something to be angry about. 
uh, and to be able to attack the government. And it's not just the elections, it's health officials. It's We see a lot of that. We've seen school boards under attack. We've seen health officials under attack, certainly the election community uh, under attack. And when we debunk everything they say, uh, these people respond that, well, you can't trust what Adam says. He's the deep state. He's the government. So it's sort of an ad hominem attack. And, and people who are inclined to believe that way, they're not really a receptive audience. They don't want to listen to facts. But my audience for these things that we do is not those people. They're a, they're a fringe. But there is a large, uh, according to polling that we've seen, a large plurality of people that hear from one, from one side and they hear from the other side. They, they hear the elections are great. They hear the elections are not great. And they don't know what to believe. And so it's my job to try to go to those people in the middle and convince them that we're in the right. So let's talk about the rumor control section of the Secretary of State's website. Tell us a little bit about you know, the point of that uh, section of your website and, and, and what it tells voters. Yeah, this has been really well received. Uh, this is something that's on our on our site. It's it's a Mythbusters uh, site. And we take some of the things that are out there in social media and also things that people are asking legislators. Uh, legislators frequently send me something they get from a constituent. Sometimes it's a it's a legitimate question. Sometimes it's it's a false attack. But we do want to help them respond to their constituents and, and also respond to ours. And we we take things out there that are said that are just totally false about how we count votes in Kentucky, about the role of the internet, uh, about what unofficial results are versus official results, uh, all of that stuff. And it's a little technical, but that's kind of the point. That yeah, we thought about this already. We thought about how do we ensure that we don't have hacking and we don't have fraud and you know, it's not like we walked in here and it never occurred to us that we'd have vulnerabilities. So we spot them and, and we deal with them. I've also found it's been helpful to literally Xerox copies of what's on our website and distribute it at events, at fairs and things like that, or the state fair where we have a booth because we give out pens and, you know, swag, junk like that. It's also really important to get out information. And so this has been a good platform for us to reach the general public. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've talked a lot. You know, one of your slogans was let's make it easier to vote and hard to cheat. What we've shown in Kentucky is you can make it easy to vote and hard to cheat at the same time. You don't have to suppress voters. That's not right. You got to make this accessible for our people. It's good for both sides. It's good for the voters. But you also have to ensure security. Because again, if you don't, you're going to suppress voters because they're not going to trust your process and they're not going to come vote. You've also discussed how laws that improve election security are also voter turnout measures. Um, how do these two things coexist? So I think both in policy and also in optics, you should do both. And I think right now in America today, you've got one party that uh, prizes access, but sometimes has a, a little bit of a, a of a hard spot when it comes to security and integrity. Uh, you have the other party that's the opposite. They they love integrity. They talk about it all the time, sometimes ad nauseum, and they're not always good on access. And I think it's important that you have both. You, you've got to have elections that have integrity, uh, number one, so that you have fair elections. Number two, so people will trust in them and actually will come vote, and that's good for access and, and turnout. It's And for the reason I said, it's good politically to bounce the two so you have both sides uh, using the system, trusting the system. Uh, it's really important. In terms of the actual policy, I would say substantively that that uh, turnout, that that uh, access and security also uh, work hand in hand. And and let me give you an example uh, with early voting. I think that's maybe the 
the you know the capstone of what we've accomplished here uh, is to expand our our voting to beyond one day, which is just you know we had uh, one day to vote since 1891, uh, and it just doesn't reflect how people live their lives in modern day America. There's no other government function that we just make available for one day. That's it's pretty crazy. So we've expanded that out. Uh, one of my goals for my second term is to see a higher utilization of early voting. Uh, but one argument that I made, not just uh, not just in the legislature to get Republicans to vote for early voting, but also have made since then to get voters uh, just trusted and to utilize it is early voting isn't just good for access. It obviously is. It's also good for security uh, because election day is pretty chaotic. You've got potentially millions of voters showing up voting lines, poll workers kind of frazzled. If you can smooth that out over a few days, you make it a smoother experience for poll workers. They're going to be more attentive to to checking the identity of who is voting, of making sure there's there's not been any sort of tampering, that sort of thing. When you have a smooth election, you have a better election, a more trustworthy election. So I don't think expanding access hurts uh, security. There is a an effort right now in the legislature to repeal early voting. And uh, I will say this, obviously I'm against it, uh, but at least the people that are pushing it are not arguing that we've got fraud in our elections because of early voting. They're making other arguments I don't agree with, but at least at least they're not going there. And I think that tells you a lot about Kentucky today, how we've not been as as gullible to misinformation as some other states. Yeah, of course, I would like to see an expansion of early voting, at least for the urban areas. You know, maybe three days makes sense for some of the rural counties, uh, perhaps not in the urban areas. In addition, I would add, um, you know, expanding our poll closing time. You know, we're one of the earliest in the country closing our polls at 6 p.m., um, uh, and so I think, you know, a lot of people are not off work by then. Uh, if they do want to go on that Tuesday, it makes it pretty difficult to show up. Yeah, I, I personally think if you have to pick of pick one of the two, and you don't, but if you did have to pick one of the two, adding other days or other hours outside of of more than 12 hours on one day is a better way to do that. It's easier to get poll workers for shorter periods of time, like an eight-hour day versus a 12-plus hour day. Uh, ironically, when I when I first ran for this job, I I visited as many clerk, uh, county clerks as I could when I was campaigning of, of both parties, and I asked them how do you feel about early voting, and and they were all against it, and now they all support it because it actually makes their job easier. Uh, I do sense some appetite among some of the counties to expand to more voting days. I, I do think if we do that, it does need to be uniform. Even though I I, I do think that. Some counties would benefit more than other counties uh, from more days to vote. I, I just don't want the idea of having more days to vote in one county versus another. I think there's an equal protection issue there. I think it's very feasible that we'll have more voting days in the relatively near future, maybe during my term. But I think first we have to see a higher usage of our existing early voting days. Right now, it's a tough sell for me with the legislature to have more than three extra days because even with a real push from our office and a push uh, from the Bashir and Cameron campaigns last fall, we still had just under 20% of voters using the early voting. Uh, what you see in other states, we've looked at Tennessee, West Virginia, Ohio, states that have had early voting for years, is when they first enacted it, it took a, took a few cycles for it to really catch on. But once it did, about half the vote got cast early and, and about half on election day. And this led to a much, much smoother process for, for the voters and for the poll workers and election officials. Yeah, that makes a big difference. What's your biggest fear about the 2024 election and how are you preparing? I actually just about uh, an hour ago, I finished a podcast with the Washington Post and they asked me that same question. 
And I said, I know there's a lot of concern on a lot of fronts, and I I share that. Uh, but actually, what keeps me up at night, uh, relatively speaking, is is the more typical walking and tackling things that we have to do in terms of getting enough poll workers and enough locations. And those are two separate issues, and I'll detail those a little bit. Uh, when I was elected in 2019, I was asked to come testify to the legislature. Before I was even sworn in, I was telling them we have a, a poll worker crisis brewing. We have fewer and fewer people who are re-enlisting and, and younger generations are not enlisting at all. And I said that in, in 2019, before before COVID, before 2020, before uh, threats of violence in the election process, and none of that's helped. Uh, so so number one, uh, we do have always a challenge of getting poll workers. It's It's better than I thought it would be. But we still have our work cut out for us. We have raised the pay. I say we, it's not me, it's the county clerks, the local governments, double or even triple the pay. That's really helped stench some of the bleeding of our recruitment, but we still have a long way to go there. The other uh, challenge is having enough locations. That's gotten much, much harder. I would say getting locations is, is harder than getting poll workers for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is uh, schools are less apt to play ball. Uh, especially coming out of COVID, they've been closed for a long time. Parents put immense pressure uh, on the school boards to not close the schools for anything, including voting. And so uh, there was pushback on our efforts to use the schools. Some of the schools are worried about security. Uh, they're worried about letting the general public on the premises, especially if kids are there. But even if they're not there, they're worried about acts of violence. They're worried about some person coming onto the premises, scoping the place out, and then becoming an active shooter later. Uh, they have real security concerns. Uh, churches, too, we've seen a decline in churches volunteering. Uh, we've historically had a, a lot of churches uh, join us as voting locations. Uh, 2022 wasn't good for that either because we had an abortion amendment on the ballot here. And we have pro-choice churches like the Unitarians. We have pro-life churches like the Catholic churches. And a lot of those churches had some uh, some literature out there on their premises uh, for or against the amendment. And so some voters got bent out of shape about that because they had strong views on the other side. So some of the churches said, we're done. Uh, everything's political now. <laughs> we can't do this anymore. Uh, it's it, it takes about, uh, uh, in theory, uh, about 3,800 uh, places in Kentucky. That's how many precincts we have. 3,800 physical locations for us to open all the precincts, which we don't do now. But if we did, that's what it would take. Uh, I don't have 3,800 buildings under my purview. This is a, a, a tiny office. Uh, I can't commandeer uh, buildings. And the vast majority of the buildings that are used are not public buildings in the first place. They're private buildings. Uh, so persuading them to to volunteer their premises is getting harder and harder. And, and you know, there's, there's an overlap with the reasons people don't want to be poll workers. They also don't want to go up their premises not knowing what could happen. Yeah. So lots to lots to consider as we get ready for the 2024 election. Uh, Secretary Adams, here's my last question. Are you optimistic? You know, this show is called Democracy Optimist. Are you optimistic about voting elections and democracy as we enter the presidential election year? I'm going to give you some cautious optimism. And, and here's where that comes from. I got a lot of surprises the last four years. The stuff I uh, I expected in 2019 and, and then my actual experience since then uh, nothing close uh, to each other. But here's here's some sunny optimism, and I'm really sincere about this. I am shocked still to this day how much people actually do listen to legitimate sources of information 
when they're making decisions. And here's an example. Uh, in twenty, in early 2020, April of 2020, when I worked out an arrangement with Governor Bashir for how we were going to run the elections during COVID, uh, there was a poll. It wasn't my poll, but there was a poll done that showed that by three or four or five to one, Democrats approved of it, independents approved of it, and Republicans opposed it uh, two to one. Uh, they opposed absentee voting and a pandemic before even we even knew what what uh, transmitted coronavirus before masking before vaccines when we just didn't know anything they were still against people being able to safely vote at home and against early voting as well but we went out there our office uh, we did a, a media blitz we conveyed information all day every day about why you can trust absentee voting why you can trust early voting why this is good for you why you can trust it and when people voted two months later not only did Republican voters believe us and accept what we did, they actually utilized it. They used the early voting. They used the absentee voting. And if they hadn't, if we had not been able to convince them that they could trust it, even though the leader of the Republican Party was saying you can't, if we had not been successful, the election would have crashed because the election relied on not just changing stuff, but people taking advantage of those changes and actually voting absentee and voting early. So I'll confess, I've been in politics a long time. I can be a little cynical sometimes. That really taught me something, which is people will listen. Even people that you, you think are maybe uh, not willing to hear you out and won't take the word of some mid-level uh, official over a sitting president, they actually will listen. If you if you address their concerns, don't, don't uh, stereotype them, listen to them, address them in good faith and explain not just why it's okay, but why they should use it. Yeah, well, hopefully conversations like these will help to sustain people's uh, feelings toward what's possible for democracy this year. Secretary of State Michael Adams, the Secretary of State of Kentucky, thank you so much for joining Democracy Optimist. My pleasure. This is Tom Martin here with Democracy Optimist host Josh Douglas. Josh, you live and breathe election law and voting. So I'm wondering, uh, what would be your election law of the day? So we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation with Secretary Adams, Kentucky's voter ID law, which was his number one campaign promise. And I worked with him on crafting a law that I have called in my scholarship one of the mildest forms of photo ID in the country. And why is it mild? Because there's lots of different kinds of IDs that count, as well as a fail-safe mechanism for voters who show up to the polls and don't have an ID. In Kentucky, if you show up to the polls without a photo ID, so long as you show a non-photo ID, you know, a credit card, social security card, something like that, uh, and you fill out an affidavit saying, you know, you are who you say you are, then you can vote a regular ballot just like everybody else. That's different from a lot of other states that if you show up without an ID, you have to fill out a provisional ballot, which will not count unless you take additional steps after Election Day. But I do want to dispel some myths about photo ID laws, even though the Kentucky model is pretty good in terms of not disenfranchising very many people because of all of the fail-safe mechanisms we put into the law. Um, you know, I hear arguments all the time that you need a photo ID to vote just be, you know, just like you need a photo ID to board a plane or to buy Sudafed. And that's just simply not true. Um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I mistakenly showed up to the airport without my driver's license. I put it aside and forgot to put it back in my wallet. 
And I was able to get through security just fine. It took a couple extra minutes, um, a much more thorough security process. They went through all of my stuff. Um, but I was able to get through airport security just fine. With respect to you need an ID to buy Sudafed, well, you actually don't. Pharmacists have workarounds uh, if you go to buy it and you don't have an ID. Of course, neither are fundamental rights of living in a democracy either. So uh, I think photo ID laws, it's you know, a big hot button issue. They cause more harm than good. The Kentucky model is a reasonable uh, solution if we're going to have to have one. Um, but we should also make sure we have the truth about uh, what photo IDs do and whether you need them or not. Not to mention, by the way, the only kind of fraud that a photo ID law would prevent is in-person impersonation, and that simply doesn't happen. Okay, let's say we're hanging out with friends, or maybe it's dinner with family, and uh, we're having this great conversation about this election coming up, and uh, we want to be on top of things. And the way to do that is to have a really great fact in your hip pocket. It, could you give us a fun election fact that we can wow our friends and family with. So this episode, we were focusing on Kentucky specifically, and I was proud to learn that Kentucky was historically an innovator in election reform. It was the first state to pass a statewide women's suffrage law uh, in 1838, letting female heads of households vote in elections on tax and local school boards. In addition, Kentucky was the second state after Georgia to lower the voting age from 21 to 18 for state elections, doing so in 1955, 16 years before the federal constitutional amendment that lowered the voting age to 18 for all elections. So on various aspects of expanding suffrage, Kentucky has been at the forefront. I think the possibility of an erosion of democracy that has uh, been the norm in this country for centuries is motivating a lot of people to, to become active in some way. What one thing can we do to support democracy? Visit your state's voter registration site right now to check your voter registration. Too often people wait until the last minute to check their voter registration. I check mine every year just because, just to make sure that there's nothing going on, that there hasn't been a mistake in my voter registration. Um, in Kentucky, the voter registration deadline is 29 days before the election. And, you know, a lot of people are not paying attention uh, a month out. Of course, I am, but I do this, you know, for a living. I focus on voting rights and election law. Uh, in Kentucky, you can go to govote.ky.gov, and that will take you to the voter registration site. Every state has a uh, site where you can check your voter registration. So I encourage people to look at the beginning of the year, make sure you're good to go, and then get a friend to do so as well. Send a link to the voter registration website to your friend or family member and say, hey, takes two minutes, check your voter registration just to make sure. Thanks for joining us for Democracy Optimist, a special Eastern Standard series produced by Dynamics Productions and WEKU. Joshua Douglas, our writer and host, Mike Savage, executive producer, me, Tom Martin, producer, Neil Kesterson, technical director and sound designer, special appreciation to Madeline Peru for our theme music, American. Mason Graber, research assistant, Caitlin Douglas, graphic designer, Ella Fitzgeraldine, studio dog. This series is online at democracyoptimist.com and podcast versions are available wherever you get podcasts. Want to get in touch? Our email is democracyoptimist at gmail.com. 
I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for listening to Democracy Optimist from Eastern Standard and WEKU.